Having said that, let's stand together now and read from Genesis, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 20. Once again, I use the ESV, which varies somewhat differently from the NIV, which you hold in your hands. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I to the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And so Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her, go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's bow our heads together for a prayer. But before we do, please feel free to be seated. Heavenly Father, as we come before this text this morning, we are grateful for the truth that is revealed here. And we recognize that in this reading, we have heard and read together the very Word of God. And that you give the Word of God to us so that you might reveal to us 
yourself and so that you might reveal to us the way of your salvation. Heavenly Fathers, we come to this great text this morning. I pray that your hand would rest upon each person that is here. As we have gathered together in this place, coming from different contexts, different trials and situations in life, I pray that through the presentation of the Word of God, you would touch and encourage hearts. Heavenly Father, I pray that your hand would rest upon me. I recognize every time I stand in this place how needy I am. I cry out to you, O God, that you would forgive me of my sin, cleanse me. And I pray, Father, that you might use me as a vessel in your hand, that foremostly you might be glorified and honored in this place. And, Father, that your saints might be encouraged. Father, we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this text this morning, and the title of our message this morning, the message this morning is The Pilgrimage of Faith and the Faithfulness of God. The Pilgrimage of Faith and the Faithfulness of God. And this morning I would like to divide our, our text, our sermon, into four categories. I would like us firstly to consider the pilgrimage of faith begun and continued. We... Uh, we spent a little bit of time here last week on this first point. We're going to continue here today a little bit further and tying some of the things that were said last week to a specific text today or verse today. So the pilgrimage of faith begun and continued. The second is the testing of faith. And the third, the failure of faith. And the fourth, the faithfulness of God. And so let's begin then this morning with the pilgrimage of faith begun or begun and continued. We have here then revealed to us in the scriptures that Abraham has been effectually called by God. He has heard the voice of God. God's grace has come down upon Abraham, has invaded his life, and he has been caused to be born again. If we were to identify a passage from Peter, that's how he would describe what happened to Abraham and what transpires in our lives. And after receiving the effectual call of God, he responds to what God calls him to do. God says he wants him to leave Ur and to go in the direction that he tells him to go. He doesn't tell Abraham where his destination is. He just simply says, go in this direction. The word of God tells us that he was going towards Canaan. As he was going towards Canaan, it was not a realization in his mind that that is exactly where it was that he was going. But he departs on his way, on this journey, journey at the bidding of God, out of obedience to what God has called him to do. He goes part way, and for whatever reason unknown to us, he stops in the land of Iran, and he resides there for perhaps five years. He doesn't settle there. There's no intention he's going to stay there for a long period of time. He simply settles there for a period of time. And during that time, his father, Terah, dies. After Terah dies, then Abraham gathers all of his belongings together, all of the people that have gathered together with him in this journey that he is pursuing, and he leaves Haran, and he goes towards Canaan. And the word of God tells us eventually this morning in the text that he arrives there. Now, when he arrives at Canaan, all that Abraham possesses in relationship to his response to God is the promise that God has given to him. He tells them that he will make his name great and he will have an inheritance and a seed will come from him. And he offers to Abraham protection that if anyone raises a word against him or a hand against him, there will be 
a curse that will come upon him. There's this, there's this promised blessing of protection that is given to Abraham as he goes out on his journey, and then he carries that in his heart as he arrives. When we come to verse 5, the scriptures tell us this. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother, and all their possessions, and all that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem. And then the word of God tells us that the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham, his offspring, and he, he, he speaks to him uh, more about this promise of giving him to this land. And, and Abraham builds an altar. And the word of God says in verse 8 that he moved from the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And he built an altar to the Lord. And then later on it says, and he journeyed on going forward to the Negev. And there, there are two things that are transpiring in the context of this passage. We see that when Abraham arrives at Canaan, the Canaanites are in the land. And yet God has promised that this is a land that he is going to give to Abraham's descendants. And Abraham arrives in Canaan, and the first thing that God does is he begins to show him what that land is. And so Abraham is there, and at the leading of God, he begins to walk and make his way throughout the land. And don't you imagine that as he was going through this process, as he was looking at his land of Canaan, that there was just a, a sense of, of overwhelming gratefulness to God, an overwhelming sense that, that this is going to be a promise, this is going to be a blessing that is going to be given to his inheritance. And, and he would walk to one region, and he would see uh, portions and measures of land, and he would, he would visualize, he would see it, and God would say to him, this is going to be for those that come after you, and he would go from that place to another, and he would show him another portion of land, and he's just journeying throughout the land, seeing all of this space that is going to be given to his inheritance. God does this for Abraham so that he might be greatly encouraged in his faith and might more perhaps embrace firmly the promise that God has given to him. But he shows him the land. Now I want, us look, I want us to look just briefly at this from a symbolic fashion because there's a sense in which God does the same thing for us. Not that he takes us to a place where he shows us a physical land and says, this is going to be your land. But when we come into the kingdom of God, when we are effectually called, God's grace breaks upon our lives and hearts. We are born again. God begins to show us a land, doesn't he? That happened in your life. The truth of God came to you. And it was undeniably presented to you in such a way that you embraced Christ as your Savior. And upon responding to what you understood as truth, as the truth began to resonate within your heart, God from that moment on began to reveal to you his land. And how is it that he reveals to us his land? He reveals to us this land that we are to possess by revealing to us the truth of the scriptures. Because before, the word of God meant nothing to us if we knew it even existed at all. But suddenly, now that we are born again, we begin to look into the word of God and we discover that there is life in these words. In these words, there is a revelation of the person and the nature and the character of God. In the word of God, there is a pathway that is established for me, direction, guidance that I can receive from the word of God. 
How many of you here this morning, when you, when you came into the, into the kingdom and you began to hear the truths of the scriptures, that you found within your heart that there was almost like an igniting of a flame within you. And there was a thrill, there was excitement about the truth that was there. You began to see things that you never saw before. And you began to see depths in the person, the nature and character of God that you never saw before. But the revealing of these things coming to you, your, whole, your soul and your spirit were encouraged. How many of you have felt that? How many of you, when you've looked at the word and, and, and you see something of God's truth there, maybe it's something that you've heard a hundred times before, but all of a sudden, you, you, one day you look at something that you've known is there and it just springs life into your soul. What's God doing? He's, he's encouraging your heart. He's, he's, he's revealing to you, this is the land that I've given to you. This world, we're just simply sojourning through this world. But there's a land that God has given us. It's revealed to us in the Word of God. And I believe that it is the whole truth of God that ministers to us. It is the whole counsel of God. It is, as the Scriptures identify in Timothy Working our way methodically through the scriptures. That is something we're committed to here. I say this not to be critical of other contexts, but I believe that methodically working our way through the scriptures is, is critical, is important. I heard uh, an individual tell me at the very beginning of my ministry, uh, I heard a, a story about what preaching is like. My friend told me, preaching is kind of like a pastor standing up on Sunday morning he has this bucket of water and as he's standing out there with this bucket of water the people are, are out there in the congregation in their seats, pews, whatever and, and they all have a cup and they're holding their cup out hoping that when the pastor takes the bucket of water and he throws it out that something will land in the cup Now, we could have that view towards the proclamation of the truth, but the reality of it is that if that's our view of the Scriptures being revealed and having an impact upon our lives, you, you see, water's going to miss some cups because sometimes somebody's going to come in and, you know, my real need in my life is I'm struggling with anxiety. Now, I, I can say, I, I struggle with anxiety. That's, that's, that's uh, one of my... Uh, uh, failings in my faith and trust. Other individuals can be struggling with depression or you can be struggling with financial problems, you can be struggling with marriage problems. You, you pick a problem. Not too hard, right? We all have them. So we come on Sunday morning and really, you know, Pastor, what we want you to do is when you speak this morning, touch my problem. We go, the pastor speaks, and we walk away and say, my problem wasn't addressed at all. And a design of ministry could be fashioned after the manner that what we want to do is we want to meet the needs by addressing those needs specifically. Well, let me tell you something. When you do something like that, it can kind of be like throwing a bucket of water out to a group of people holding their cups out because some's going to fall in and some is not. But the reality is that the Word of God in its totality as it is proclaimed, brings life. 
How many times have I been in a context where I was dealing with a specific issue in my life, struggling? And I'm crying out to God for some sense of revelation, some sense of inspiration to come to me to address where it is that I am. And just simply by someone proclaiming the truth, as is revealed in Scripture, I find that God meets me at a point of need. It doesn't necessarily tell me what it is I'm to do with the situations before me, but the Word of God brings life to my spirit and to my soul. And that's what the Word of God does. It brings to us life to our souls. And even though we may not find a specific answer to a question we want when we gather together for the exposition of the Word of God, the Word of God is life-giving. It gives life. It encourages the soul as we understand more about the nature and the character of God and the way of his salvation. I can remember when I was a young boy, we, had a, we, 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 were, not the, we were certainly not the first individuals in our small town of Lindsay to have a, a TV. That's, that, I mean, for me to say that to this generation who have, has all this technology available, it, it would be hard to believe that there actually was a time when people didn't have TVs. But in Lindsay, Ohio, we were not among the first to have a TV, but I remember when TVs, when we had a TV for the first time, and they had those things called commercials or advertisements that came on. And the, the, the uh, advertisers were very creative in how they tried to promote their products. And I, I, I kind of liked, I always remember this one advertisement about Wonder Bread. How many of you ever saw the Wonder Bread commercials when they first came out? <laughs> do, do you remember what the one, you, you, remember, you remember what was behind Wonder Bread? What was, what was stated in the Wonder Bread commercials? It says, eat Wonder Bread. Now, people say, that's white bread. <laughs> no, it's white bread. That's the first problem there is it's white bread. But I love white bread, so I can get by that one. But then it goes on and it says, it says you know, you eat Wonder Bread because Wonder Bread does what? It, it builds bodies in 12 different ways. Can you believe it? Wonder Bread builds bodies in 12 different ways. Just eat this bread, and that's what's going to happen to you. Well, you can build some bodies, all right. <laughs> but uh, I, use that to, I use that kind of a, in, in a joking way, but maybe to emphasize a point that's critical. The Word of God builds the man and woman of God in all different ways. You can take this kernel of truth here as it relates to this issue or that issue, and believe me, when it comes to us, it resonates within our soul, there's a great encouragement that comes to our minds and to our hearts. And so when we, when we come here on Sunday mornings, when we go to the Word of God, when we read and when we study, we are hunters. I'm a hunter when I come here. Because I know there's going to be, I know God's going to speak to me. And I am, I am looking to hear the voice of God to touch my heart because I know his word proclaimed will minister to my heart and will glorify God. That's how we assemble. We come together. We, we, we receive the word of God this way. And the whole counsel word of God, we, we, we begin to just see the breadth of the truth of God and we find life in its reading and its hearing. Well, there's something else that's happening here, and we touched upon it briefly last week. I guess it was briefly. I'm not sure whether you consider it brief or not. I don't know, but we, we touched upon it. 
We talked about a fruitfulness that comes in the life of a believer and their, their doing. Now let's look specifically at something that takes place in this text. In this text, Abraham is taken to the land of Canaan, begins to walk through it, and all every step, his heart's being encouraged. Every step. Yeah, even though the Canaanites are in the land. They own the land, you see. And Abraham goes to this place. God opens it to a place and shows him the expanse. This is yours. This will be for your children's children. And what does Abraham do? He builds an altar. And then, and he builds an altar and his focus is on worshiping God. Those that are with him, they're worshiping God. Their focus, God is central in this whole enterprise. And then they gather things up and they go to another place. And they go to this other place. And God is showing them the expanse of that place, that land. And they build an altar to the Lord. And I believe that we have two altars referred to here, and there are more that were built in the context. You go through the book of Genesis, but where Abraham went, he built an altar. He didn't own one square foot. He was going to someone else's backyard, and he's building an altar. He builds an altar. He does not. But the fact that he does not possess that land at that point does not stop him from building that altar. He builds an altar in someone else's land that God has promised to him. An altar builder. And, and as a result of that, wherever he went, no space of land was left unchanged. He never went to a place where, after having left, it remained the way it was. It was always changed because he was there. Did you see it? And some people would go by and they would see an altar that was built and they would say, where did that altar come from? What, or, what, or what is that? You know? And maybe someone said, well, I, I don't know. There's this, there's this new individual in the land, and he's, he's walking around, and he's got a band of people with him. And I don't know, we've seen, he's, he's building these things and bowing down and sacrificing, and, and he's, he's doing it here, and he's doing it over there. I've, I've seen him. And maybe someone else said, I think this guy's name's Abram. And then other people, they'd walk and they would see these things that were there and they didn't know how they got there. No one gave them any explanation. But the land was not the same because an altar was there. And you see, we touched on this last week, but see, this is what God does through his people. Wherever we go, we build altars. The word of God says you are the light of the world. And then it doesn't say, you know, go out and, well, it goes, it just says, just let your light shine. You are the aroma and the fragrance of Christ. The aroma of life to those that are being saved. The aroma of death to those who are not. You, because God's spirit lives within you, wherever you go, no place remains the way it was before you were there. And the reason why that's so is because God's spirit is within you. That, that 
to me, that gives so much credibility, so much significance to every life that the smallest of words, the smallest of deeds, God uses, he invests. And so the Lord comes to us and he says, let your light shine. Wherever you go, build an altar. My, uh, my father was a very simple man. Never, never completed high school. He didn't like studies, and when his father fell ill and someone had to run the farm and there were three sons, he, as the youngest, stepped forward and said, I'll, I'll run the farm, and then that was his escape from school. After farming for a while, he went into the military, was in World War II, and never did complete his high school education. He was a, a very simple man. He had followed Christ early in his teens and early 20s, but had drifted from his faith, and later on in life, God's call had, had been so faithful upon him that his heart was turned back towards the Lord. And I can remember conversations that I would have with him. I, like sure, he, would, he, would, he, would, he would take cassette recordings of messages that I sent to him as I was pastoring, and he would listen to them over and over again. And he had just this simple faith. And I, I went home one time, and my mom said to me, if your father plays your sermon one more time. I am going to tear it up so it can't be listened to again. <laughs> he just had this simple faith, and I, I remember him saying, you know, when I die, there will be no one that will come to my funeral. When I did his funeral, it was uh, the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. I didn't think I'd make it through. But as I stood there and I looked out at the people who were there, I saw many people that had come there. People that he had worked with in the factory. People whose lives he had just touched. And they were there because he had touched their lives because Christ's aroma was spread through him. How surprised he would have been had he been able to see it. The aroma of Christ is in you. And wherever it is that you go, let the light of Christ shine through you. While we go on, this morning in this text, and I guess I spent a little bit more time there, and some of it was much review. And I, I just think, you know, some of the times we can devalue the significance of our lives and our daily existence, and we never want to do that. Well, we then come to this time where there's a testing of faith that takes place. 
in this pilgrimage of faith that Abraham is walking. He, he has left Ur. He has traveled a long way through the wilderness to arrive even at Haran. And then he moves from Haran to go even a farther distance. And all that time, God is protecting him and caring for him. And there's this perhaps anticipation in his heart that he's going to arrive at, at this place and he's going to see his ultimate destination. And when he arrives at this place and he's journeying through his land and he's enjoying the encouragements of God that are coming to him, there comes a famine upon the land. And there, in the word of God, were a number of reasons as to why famines came upon the land. But oftentimes it was because uh, simply the, the heavens seemed to dry up. There was no water that was descending from the skies to water the lands and to make them fertile for the growing of crops. And consequently, for not having water, there was no food. And then livestock, their lives were put in jeopardy. And individuals, a whole economic context was being sacrificed because there's a famine in the land. So Abraham goes there and, and God's showing him all these things and then now, now a famine comes. Now what do you think that Abraham might have been tempted to think at that point? You know, Abraham, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring you from a land er, where they never have any famines. You know, I'm going to bring you from this place where you are quite comfortable. You had everything that you needed. All you, all you, you needed to supply for the needs of your family was there. You had property, you know, it was all set up for you. I have, I have taken you from that context and now I've brought you here and now you have a famine. <laughs> we might have thought, Lord, I'm, I, I think there's been some sort of mistake. You know, this, this is not the land of milk and honey. His faith was being tested at that point. All he had. See, we, we can evaluate Abraham on the basis of the word that we have. See, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Abraham had this promise and a certain understanding of a redeemer. That, that's what he had. Not much more than that was in his possession. And now that is being tested because of this famine that has come upon the land. His faith is tested. The Word of God tells us in 1 Peter, the 6th and 7th chapter, that our faith will be tested so that the genuineness of our faith might rise to the glory of God. That, that, that's a Roger Melson paraphrase. James, consider all joy when you meet various trials. <laughs> I know that's the first thing we think of, you know. We have this trial, and the first thought that goes through our mind is that this is really great. But the Word of God promises us this, that when we come into the kingdom of God, we will be tested, we will be tried to prove the genuineness of our faith. I'd like to identify another path. But the Word of God tells us that that is the path upon which we embark. That our faith is tried. And we see that, that this was true in the life of Christ. 
that he goes down to the river Jordan. He is baptized by John. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. There's this voice that comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that, he was what? Driven into the wilderness. And why was he driven into the wilderness? But to display the glory of God in his faith lived and his triumph over the enemy. We're going to get to failure in a few moments here, but that's that's the same thing that happens in us. And you'll notice that Jesus was driven into the wilderness not because he was disobedient. As a matter of fact, when you look at the Word of God, you see individuals over and over again are tested and tried not because they've done something wrong, not that we don't do things wrong, but not because they did something wrong. And we see that it was true of Job. Why was Job tried? Because he was really messing up. (laughs) No. He was in the way of obedience. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. There he is in this closed place and he has lions before him. He was in the way of obedience. But that was his case. Not because there was something that he had done wrong. The Apostle Paul, <laughs> I know I probably said this before, but I always, it was always amazing to me early back in the 70s and 80s. I, I know you don't believe I'm too young to, have, to reflect back upon that time. But individuals said, I want to do what Paul did. And whenever they said, I want to do what Paul did, the things he did, you know, I want to, that's the things I want to do. I always thought, but do you want to really do what Paul did? He was shipwrecked. He was afloat at sea. He was beaten within an inch of his life over and over again. One place he's shipwrecked and he reaches near the fire and a viper comes out and, and bites his hand. They thought he had been, this guy must have done something wrong. You see, all these things, he he was cold, he was hungry. He was in the way of obedience. And testing came upon his faith. And so it is true that we we can identify just one after another individual that goes through trials in the Scriptures, reveal us to Scriptures, that went through trials. It was not because they were disobedient, it was because they were in the way of obedience and God was testing their faith. And we can be certain that our faith will be tested. It will be tested over and, and over again. Sometimes it may become at us like waves, but it always comes toward us so that God might work something in us and so that God's glory might be revealed through us. I love the verse in Psalm 107, verses 33 and following, where it says that God takes the deserts and turns them into springs of water. And he takes thirsty lands and he makes them fruitful lands. This is done in our own lives, in times of trial, oftentimes, and hopefully for the sake of the glory of God. So we have the testing of our faith, and we know there's going to be there will be time of testings, and we go through them. But we go through them with purpose. And then we see the failure of faith. 
Abraham fails. Now, we look at Abraham and we say, how is it that he failed in this text? Well, let's, let's look at verse 10. It says, now, there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. He went down to Egypt. Some people say, now, there's the, there, we've got it now. Look at the phrase, he went down to Egypt. He went down to Egypt. Down, down, down. Well, geographically, that's about all he could do. You know what I'm saying? You got Canaan here and you got Egypt here. He had to go down to Egypt. I don't think we can derive any great value of the fact that he went down to Egypt. That that was the place of his failure. Going to Egypt was the problem, some say. They shouldn't have gone to Egypt at all. That it exhibited weakness and failure on his part. Some say, as you look at verses 10 through 16, in that context, never once do you hear the name or see the name of God recorded. He shouldn't have been there. Because before, in his journey, God was leading him. But now God is absent from the text. Well, an argument from silence, I think, is pretty weak. I, I don't think that there was a problem there. Some individuals say he went down there, it was wrong, and I can tell you why it, why it was wrong. I can tell you what happened. You know, there was a commentator who wrote this. I have to share this. I was going to skip over it for the sake of time, but I just can't skip over this. <laughs> there was a commentator who wrote, and he did excellent work in the work of the book of Genesis, I must tell you. And he said... This, although the scriptures do not say this, of course, we know when you begin that way, it, you know, you're beginning to walk on thin ice, right? Women, prepare yourselves. Although the scriptures do not say this, Sarah complained to Abraham about being in that land and not having anything and wanting to be somewhere else. And it was because of Sarah that Abraham went down to Egypt. Now, <laughs> I don't know if he survived his wife or not. What do you think? <laughs> but he went down to Egypt. And, and I believe that there was nothing wrong with him going down to Egypt. True, in the land of Canaan, there were individuals that couldn't go down there because they didn't have the ability to do so, and Abraham had the ability to do so. Some had to stay in Canaan. They had to kind of wait out the, the drought and the famine. But, but Abraham goes down, and he, he has all of these possessions, this uh, tremendous gathering to take care of. And he goes down to Egypt because there's no water in Canaan, but in Egypt there's land, and many nations in times of famine would go to Egypt because of the Nile River being watered from the rains that descended on distant mountains and flowed down into the Nile area where the land was fertile and all the water that was needed was there. And to me it seems like it was a very practical thing, that the solution was at hand. And so he gathered his group together, and, and they went to Canaan. But the problem, in my mind, and some would be critical of my perspective, I understand that, but 
The problem in my mind is not that he went to Egypt. It's what happened when he arrived in Egypt. They're just on their way. Well, they've been on their way. And they're almost ready to enter into Egypt. And one night, as Abraham is lying next to Sarah, and he's thinking about the wickedness of the Egyptian people, different things that take place in relationship to women and what have you, he begins to think about his own life. And he's thinking, my wife is really beautiful. She was 65 years of age at that time. Women lived longer in that time. They lived to be 127. She was we might say an early, middle-aged woman, and she was attractive. She was beautiful. Abraham knew it. And he was concerned that someone would come down and would take her away, that they would kill him and, and take her away from him. And so he says, listen. He may have said, listen, honey. <laughs> uh, when we get into Egypt, why don't you say you're my sister and I'm your brother, and as a brother, I have responsibility to receive individuals that are suitors of you, and maybe we can hold these suitors off at arm's length for a while. And we'll do that, and then my life, my life will be spared for your sake. You know what I'm saying? My life will be spared for your sake. And, uh, and Sarah agrees with this plan, but if you go on to chapter 20, you'll discover that that's the plan they left Ur with. They left Ur and, 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 he, and, and they had agreed upon this pact. <laughs> that that's what they would do if danger came in some way to Abraham's person. And Sarah was his half-sister. Or was his sister. She was his half-sister because they had the same father, but there were different mothers. And so... In reality, it wasn't really a lie. Now, there are times in life where we, are not, where we do not fully disclose things. Is that not correct? Is full disclosure always, uh, is full disclosure always a wise thing to do? You know, I, I, Aaron's here with us today. and you, you take Aaron over to someone's house, and they're serving a meal... And they will say, Aaron, do you like this? And I, I have seen people's faces get quite red and people become quite baffled by the fact that she says, no, I don't like it. <laughs> and what she's doing is she's telling you the truth. And I've told people, don't ask her questions if you don't want the truth. Because if you ask her, she's going to tell you the truth. And sometimes being fully disclosing a matter is not necessarily the, the best thing to do. There are ways to, that you don't have to fully disclose. I, I remember some courses, seminary students were, 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 were told to, uh, um, to, to compliment people on the way the food looked or smelled before they ate it, and that way they would, be, they would escape having to be honest about it after they ate it. And then there, there are all kinds of ways where we might, in a situation where we may not feel that full disclosure is the best thing. How are you doing today? How are you doing today? 
Do you really want to tell everybody how you're doing today? Do you want to tell them everything? Or if you're struggling with something, do you really want to tell someone everything about that? There are times in the context of our lives where it's not necessary for everybody to know everything about us. Is that not true? It's just not, it's just not helpful. It, it protects others. It protect, there's a, a, a certain wise protection of ourselves in these things. I, I look at the... I'm going to ask you to hang with me a little bit this morning. I, I, I look at the Samaritan woman that way when Jesus said, go and tell your husband. And she said, I have no husband. Was she being dishonest? Jesus said, you have spoken rightly. You see, she didn't even know this person before her. Is it valuable for me to tell him everything about me or my situation? But Jesus goes on to reveal more about the situation so that an understanding of who he is might uh, come to her mind and attention and so that she might see her need for a savior. But there are other situations where withholding information is lying, it's deceitful. And in Abraham's situation, his withholding and telling a half-truth was a lie, and it was deceitful. He puts his wife at risk. His wife is, I mean, how, how would a person feel, how would a woman feel to be told by her husband there's a possibility that you could be taken into the house of someone else and there's a possibility that you will be defiled there. You, you talk about a fractured relationship. Doing it because he's trying to spare himself, save himself. He just completely runs over the understanding that was evidently apparent in that time of the value of marriage. What is marriage? But it is a public proclamation, it is a public exhibition of a union between a man and a woman, held highest among relationships that exist among people. It's public. He takes that which is held in such honor by the Word of God, and it just like he just runs right over it. So he puts... His wife at risk, puts marriage at risk. He puts the promises of God at risk. God says, I will protect you and keep you, and, and I will do this for you. And now he's fearful of his life. How, how fears, what I'm trying to get is how fears cause us to think irrationally at times. And then he didn't think of other people because by his deceiving, he put others at risk, like Pharaoh following perhaps practices, wrong though they may be. Following through on those practices and then them being damaged as a result, and he was. It, it tells us this morning, and this I don't have time to get to this, because I, I want to, if you can hang with me, I want to get to the faithfulness of God. How critical truthfulness is among us. The, the word of God says, in Ephesians and in Colossians, speak the truth to one another. We live in a world that lies. We live in a world that deceives. We live in a world of half-truths. At the highest levels of government, there are lies. Sometimes I don't think the issue is, what is truth? I want, I want to know, will someone tell the truth? 
Because lies, they're, they're embedded in society. Deception is embedded in society. It's embedded in business. It's embedded in relationships. And you take truth from society and everything crumbles. Relationships crumble, don't they? Good relationships are established on the basis of truth. The word of God, the faith that we believe is based upon truth. You take truth away and we have nothing. There's no reason for us to be here today. No matter who the nature and character of God is. Truthfulness. The enemy is called the father of lies. God is the God of truth. 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 And so, in our dealings with one another, we want to speak truthfully with one another. It's an encouragement here. That a realization in the context of our, our lives, in the context of our faith, in the context of our relationships, truth is so critical. And now, finally, I was going to say more, but you'll be glad that I have not. We'd be here much longer if we come now, finally, to the faithfulness of God. Indeed, they went into the land and they saw that she was beautiful. The word there for saw means that she was just unveiled so they could really see. She wasn't wearing a burqa, which was common in that society at that time, but they could see her face and they could see that she was a beautiful woman just going in. And Pharaoh's servants see that she is beautiful. And the word of God says that they went back to Pharaoh and they praised her to him. The word that is used there for praise is hallel, which is from which we get hallelujah. They praised the beauty of Sarai to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh goes down and he takes Sarah from Abraham back to his dwelling place. And he is going to make her his wife. Now, the word here for take doesn't mean that he, he violently took her. He just exerted his rights as Pharaoh and ruler over the land at that time to do what he wanted to do. And, Pharaoh, and Abram, in the midst of that, does not stand and contend. He simply lets the thing go and he, does, he lets Pharaoh take his wife because he's fearful. And Pharaoh takes an Abram into, or Sarah into his dwelling place and he looks upon her favorably and he says, I'm going to shower Abram with all of these gifts and he, he gives livestock. He gave him female donkeys, which was like driving, Brian, like driving a Cadillac back in those days. And, 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 and animals of great value. He lavishes these things upon Abram. And now Abram really has a problem. He's he finds himself in this context, perhaps in, the, in his tent alone some night, and he's reflecting upon this reality that there he is in this tent and he is alone and his wife is over here and there's nothing he can do to rescue her. The one that he loves is there, that he's committed his life to, is there in this place and she is in jeopardy. But he can't go. His fear, he's so in the depths of his fear. He's received all these gifts. Can he go get her now? He goes in that place, certainly he's going to be killed. And he begins to think about the promises of God. You know, what is it I've done? I've, I've, I've not believed in God. I've not trusted in Him. 
But I've trusted my own devices to rescue myself and to resolve the situation that is before me. This is, is where he is. In this context. And the Word of God tells us this. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. You know, the interesting thing is Abram's this place where he is so afraid, where he has no answer to his solution. No answer to his solution. What can I do? Nothing. His sin has driven him to this place. And in the midst of it, God comes and says, you unfaithful, worthless servant of mine that I called, I am going to reject you now. Look what you've done, the mess that you've made of everything. But no, God comes down and he reveals that Pharaoh and all of his servants were in the hand of God. And God comes down at the very moment we think, well, you know, some judgment and some, you know, some, some strong dealing should happen to Pharaoh or to Abram now. God comes down and he rescues him. He rescues him. This failing, faltering, feeble servant who's made a mess of everything, God comes to him and he rescues him. It's the faithfulness of God. God says in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, verse 24, as I have planned, so shall it be. Job 42, verse 2, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 33, he thwarts the purposes of peoples. He thwarts the purpose of peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand forever. You see, God had a plan. And his plan included Abram. And because that was God's plan, there was nothing that could be done to thwart his purposes. And so consequently, God goes down and he rescues Abraham. And because he rescues Abraham, he rescues the promise. And in rescuing the promise, he rescues the faith and the surety of his being with the Lord forever. And he not only rescues Abraham, but throughout the history of Israel, he continually rescued the people of promise, did he not? You see, this is not just a story about rescuing Abraham. This is a story of God rescuing the line of Abraham. But you see, this is not just a story about rescuing the line of Abraham. This is a story about God rescuing the purposes that are to be realized in Christ. But you see, this is not just a, 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 an account of God rescuing the purposes of Christ. This is an account of God rescuing your life because of what God did in Abraham. He does in each one of us. There is nothing that we can do who have been called by the effectual purposes of God to thwart his purposes being accomplished in our lives. No matter how far we may sink at times, God comes to the rescue. It's not like we can walk away from him. 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Oh, we can walk away from God, can we? If he never leaves me or forsakes me, can't I walk away from him? He's never leaving me or forsaking me. Can't I walk away from him? See, it doesn't make any sense. And so we're called to obedience, but we are given this promise in this text that our continuance in the faith is always due to the faithfulness of God and not to our faithfulness to him, though he calls us to be faithful. Well, I've taken much more time this morning than what I intended to take, but is this your life? I see my life here. I see unfaithfulness in my heart. I see delight in the word of God. I see seeing the land. I see trial. Sometimes because of what I've done, sometimes not because of what I've done. I see the rescuing of God's hand upon my life. This is your life. This is my life. It's the life of every believer, and in the midst of it all, it goes, the, 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 the lives lived go to the glory of God. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father, I thank you this morning for each person that is here and for their patience and endurance, enduring with me to the end of this message. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage each life and heart that is here today. Whatever it is that we may be facing, may our gaze be upon Christ and may you hold us close to yourself in the midst of whatever it is that we go through. May we rejoice together that our lives lived, are lived in the backdrop of your faithfulness to us. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.